Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 and 2 as we now begin our new series in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would look upon us in your grace. May we look away from ourselves and look to your Son, whom you have appointed as our mediator and our Savior. As a treasure, wisdom and knowledge are in your Son. Guide us by your Holy Spirit into understanding the doctrines of Christ. May we meditate upon your word, and as we do, may it produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost throughout our witness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, many of you know that I have a great love for history. In fact, I teach history at OCA. And because of my love of history, I tend to read a lot of history. I read a lot of biographies and historical works. When you study history, and particularly when you focus on a particular person in history, the historian will utilize often personal correspondence. Do that in order to gain understanding of what that person thought. What they thought about, what were the important things to them. In some ways, I fear for future historians who will struggle to understand our time because letter writing is a lost art in our day. Having been replaced by instantaneous means of communication like texting and email or tweets. People in our day simply don't write letters. Of course, the ancient world was quite different in this respect. Letter writing in the Greek and Roman world was very common, at least among certain people. For instance, a superior would inform an inferior of certain desires or requests. They would do this in a letter. People would communicate with one another news and events. Ancient writers incorporated a certain style in their letter writing, which was common, and which the Apostle Paul adapted for his own purposes. For instance, uh, Paul would often begin uh, uh, his greeting with a focus on spiritual well-being instead of the more commonly done thing in the Roman world of physical well-being. The letters of Paul and of the other Apostles which we have contained in the New Testament, are not only historically valuable, of course, helping us to understand the thinking and teaching of the church, 
but are the very Word of God. From these epistles come some of the most important theology of the church. And since Paul was unable to be physically present to teach and to encourage the church, he wrote to individuals and to churches in order to deal with certain questions or perhaps problems which may have arisen in those places. And, uh, for instance, First First and Second Corinthians, you know, there were... The Corinthian church had lots of problems. Well, as he wrote to the Ephesians, though, he wrote as a pastor, an under-shepherd of Christ, who was imprisoned. And he wrote to a church which he himself had a hand in planting. And a church for which he had great affection. It was a church that he loved He desired to remind them of some of the key doctrines of the Christian faith and of life in the church. Ephesians, in many ways, is a a letter about the church. What we see contained in this letter, first and foremost, is the gospel. How the gospel fundamentally changes believers. Now, in this letter, which we are setting out to study, there are two basic themes, and we'll see many other themes which play off of these. But the first theme is that of reconciliation. Christ came to take those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were living in disobedience and in accordance with the passions of the flesh, being subject to the wrath of God. He has taken them and made them alive through the mercy and love of God. He has reconciled sinners. Sinners have been reconciled to a holy God through the work of Christ on the cross. This is the good news which we proclaim, the reconciliation of God through Christ and our new life in Him. That is the first theme, that of reconciliation. Secondly, and really coupled with that, is the theme of unity. Reconciliation and unity. Those who have been reconciled by Christ have union with him and are united as a body together. The church, you see, is the covenant community where all nations and peoples are united as one people in Christ. When we pray for the other nations, We pray for other churches. We're praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have brothers and sisters not only here in this body, but we have brothers and sisters all around this world. You have a brother and a sister in African countries, and in China, and in South Korea, and in Uruguay, or Brazil, or name the nation. We have brothers and sisters there that we have unity with. For there's one body. And so you have this theme of reconciliation and you have the theme of unity. And so Paul, as an ambassador in chains, is writing to a people who are united in Christ. Ephesians is 
called one of the prison letters. And this is because most likely he penned it during the two years that he was imprisoned in Rome. In some ways, it's very fitting now that we're studying Ephesians right as we finish Acts. Paul didn't just sit around waiting in prison. Paul was very busy writing letters to churches. He wants to remind the church of the gospel. He wants to encourage them in their unity in the faith in Christ. And so as we begin, the, the first thing we want to note... And in some sense, this, this is our introduction to the whole series, too. But the first thing we'll note is the author. Verse 1, Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So Paul, at least humanly speaking, wrote the letter. Of course, even as the scriptures have human authors, the ultimate author of this is God. As Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul may have been the one to put pen to paper, as it were, but it, he did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was carried along, as it were, by the Holy Spirit to write the epistle that we have before us today. Paul's heart and mind were so thoroughly spirit-controlled that the ideas they expressed, the very words that were used, are ideas and words from the Holy Spirit of God. The words of Paul to the Ephesian church, therefore, are the words of God to his people. Now, there are some in our day who are what are so-called red-letter Christians. These are people who say that the, the only authoritative portions of Scripture are those red letters. Maybe some of you in your Bibles have the words of Jesus in red. There are, there are people who think only Jesus' words are authoritative. So those are the only ones you need to pay attention to. You know, the black letters, you can kind of, well, I mean, they're helpful, but you can kind of ignore them. That's kind of the idea. Listen, the teachings of the apostles, Peter, James, John, Paul, these are the teachings of Jesus. The things which Paul taught are the same things that Jesus taught. When we study the didactic portions of Scripture, that is, the teaching portions of Scripture, it's important that we understand that the things that Paul said are the things that Jesus said. Paul does not teach something contrary or different from Jesus. Paul taught what Jesus taught. And so we are studying the same theology, the same truths which our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught to his disciples. And so looking again at the text, Paul is the author. And then he says, Paul, an apostle. Now what is an apostle? The word apostle is used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. The primary use of the word is for a messenger who is sent. A messenger 
who is sent. This is how Jesus used the term in John 13, 16, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger apostolos, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So an apostle is literally a sent one, one who is sent with a message. The early missionaries were sent out by the church to preach the gospel. And in this sense, both Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 are called apostles. They were sent out ones. But the term apostle was also used in another sense. And this is the one you're probably more familiar with. And that is for men who had been called to represent Christ. Who were invited, who were invested with the full authority of Christ like a diplomat or an ambassador. These were men that Christ had personally selected, had sent forth with complete authority to teach and to rule in his name. And Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 of the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is what he's talking about. The twelve, this is the apostles. These were a well-known, defined class of men who had been appointed as eyewitnesses of Christ's miracles, doctrines, his resurrection, and whose knowledge of the gospel is directly from Jesus Christ himself. And so when, when used in this sense, apostle, this is how Paul is using it here, apostle is referring to a particular and special office of the church. An office which carried with it authority for teaching, organizing, and governing the church. An office which, by the way, has passed away after that first generation. It is in this sense that Paul is using the term. Paul was a special office bearer, called and commissioned by Christ himself to be a witness of Christ and the gospel. You remember back in Acts chapter 9, Paul had been called directly by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had heard the gospel not from men, but directly from Christ. He belongs to Jesus Christ, and he represents Jesus Christ. So Paul is an apostle, a sent out one, a messenger, and an ambassador of Jesus Christ with all authority to teach in Jesus' name. Now notice too that he was not self-appointed to the office of apostle. Again, he's not chosen by men. He is an apostle by the will of God. Paul didn't derive his apostolic authority from men. It's not like all the other apostles came and said, well, we're going we're to go ahead and give our office to you also. That's not what happened. The other apostles did not choose him. The triune God himself chose Paul. In fact, Paul makes this point in Galatians chapter 1, where he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. We see this clearly in Acts 9.15, when Jesus, speaking in a vision to Ananias, 
said of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Jesus had chosen Paul for this task. And so Paul, who is often referred to as the apostle to the Gentiles, was called by the will of God. He was called to be an instrument to preach Christ to all the nations by the will of God. Well, that is the initial introduction. And as with the style of Greek letters of the time, it begins with the author, author, and then it moves then to the recipient. Look at the last half of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul, the apostle, has a message and he's writing to the saints. Now, what are the saints? Well, the saints refer to believers. Literally, holy ones or consecrated ones. Those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, who was the atoning sacrifice for sin. Those who have been cleansed of their sin and guilt by the blood of Christ at the cross. The saints are Christians. This is a special class of people, but not in the way that some suggest. You see, the saints aren't made saints by some pope or bishop or some ecclesiastical body. The saints are declared to be saints by God. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a member of that special class of people which the Bible calls saints. You're the saints if you're a follower of Jesus. And so generally speaking, Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus. He's writing to the believers in that city. The blood-bought people of God who are in Christ Jesus. This is also why he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. The consecrated ones, the saints. These are, by definition, the faithful believers in Jesus. What Paul is pointing out here are that those who are united together in Christ, he's speaking to the church. He's writing to the church whose object of worship is Jesus Christ. And who are united together with him as partakers in new life in Christ. All of us who are believers in Jesus, who have confessed him as Lord, who are new creatures in him, are partakers of new life in him. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Previously, before we came to faith, we were outside of the kingdom. We were enemies. We were rebels. But by faith in Jesus, we were made sons of God. And so there is a unity we have with our fellow believers. As a church, as we we have union with Christ, by faith we have union together also. We are in Him. We are heirs of the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. We've been adopted into the covenant family. And so what Paul is describing here in in not so many words is the church. He's talking about the church, and specifically the church in Ephesus, which again, he had helped to establish. 
Acts 19.10 tells us that he spent at least two years there ministering and, and preaching the gospel both to Jews and to Greeks. So Paul is writing as a pastor to his flock, reminding them of the things which they already knew through the preaching of the gospel. Well, Paul was in Ephesus for those two years. It says in Acts 19 that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. And so the preaching of the gospel, which as the church was established in Ephesus, fanned out to the whole region. And many other villages and and pockets of other people heard the gospel and believed. And Paul later in Ephesians 1.15 says that he has heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints. You see, there were some that Paul had not personally known. Because even though he was there for two years and then then he left... The the gospel continued to spread. And so there were others who were part of the church in Ephesus that he didn't personally know. But he knew about their faith in Jesus. And he was encouraging them in their faith in Christ. He's thankful for them. And he says he remembers them in his prayer. So what we're studying here is a letter from a gospel minister to his fellow believers for whom he loves fervently and is grateful for them. He's grateful for their faith in Christ. But even as he does so, as the letter opens, the first thing that Paul does is highlight the blessings of the gospel, the redemption that we have in Christ. I mentioned earlier that often in his epistles, Paul would be writing with some specific problem or, or some question in mind. But one of the things that's interesting about Ephesians is it doesn't seem at least that there's any particular problem or, or question that Paul's dealing with. At least that we can tell. No, Ephesians is written as a reminder of the redemptive work of Christ, of the unity of the church among a diversity of nationalities and peoples, of the, of the mysteries of the gospel. He also gives practical instruction for the church Strengthening the church, of course, famously, the armor of God, reminding them of all of these truths. What we see is the basics of salvation, the basics of instruction in Christian living. And so in that sense, as we, as we study Ephesians, Ephesians is both immensely doctrinal and wonderfully practical. Well, after his brief introduction of himself, of his credentials. And they would have known. They would have known Paul. Paul, then in in typical fashion, writes of grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recognize this, of course, as the apostolic greeting which we employ here at Covenant Reformed. One pattern that you'll see often in Paul's writings is that he bookends his letters with grace. He begins with grace, and he ends with grace. What is grace? Well, grace is unmerited favor. God has poured out on those who belong to him his freely bestowed loving kindness and favor, which is totally unmerited on our part. We've done nothing to deserve God's love and favor. Grace, Charles Hodge said, is the source of all good. 
grace to you and peace. What is the peace which Paul refers to? Well, in Hebrew, the corresponding word is shalom. This is spiritual well-being, spiritual prosperity, spiritual wholeness. True grace and true peace flow out of the goodness of God. If grace is the fountainhead, then peace is the stream of spiritual blessing pouring forth from it. Paul is praying for the people of Ephesus that they would be blessed with grace, God's unmerited favor, and with peace, spiritual wholeness, and spiritual well-being, contentment in Christ. He prays for grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see the Christian reference of grace and peace is emphasized. Ultimately, grace and peace have their origin in God. It is God, it's from God that this all flows. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The good, goodness of grace and peace flow out of God the Father, who gives all good gifts. God is our Father. He is our Creator. We were formed in His likeness. We were made after His image. God as a Spirit is the Father of Spirit. And we are born again by His Spirit and adopted into His family. He is our Father. We are His children by adoption, by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And so grace... And peace come from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the unmerited favor which we have bestowed on us is from God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. We are made spiritually healthy. We are made spiritually whole because of the redeeming and sanctifying work of Jesus. This is where the grace and peace come from. Those blessings of grace and peace have been earned, but not by us. They've been earned for the believer by the work of Jesus Christ, who is the master and conqueror. And speaking of our Redeemer, Paul uses three titles or names. Lord, Jesus, Christ. I know normally we, we tend to read through those sort of things, don't we? Because we've, well, we've seen it so many times. The Lord Jesus Christ. We're so used to it. We don't, we don't always stop and contemplate their meaning. But this being an introduction to Ephesians, I think it's worth taking a little bit of time to look closely and remind ourselves of the truth and significance even of the, of the names and titles And so the first title which Paul uses is Lord. In Greek, it's Kyrios. The Hebrew equivalent is Adonai, which means Supreme Lord. 
In the Old Testament, this was often used as a substitute for the name of God, Yahweh. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is Lord. In fact, He is Lord of Lords. As such, He has complete dominion and authority over all things. He has dominion. Paul says in Colossians 2.9 that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And that He is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given to Him. Jesus is Lord having all authority on account of the fact that He is God the Son. Jesus is Lord. Secondly, He's called Jesus. This means Yahweh saves. Now, this is and was then a common name. In Hebrew, it is the name Yeshua, from which we get the name Joshua. But the name fits Jesus well because he is the Savior. Yahweh saves. You see, Jesus came to set the captives free. The people of the world were in bondage to sin and the devil. And Jesus came to save his people. To set them free from prison and corruption of sin. This is the work of the Redeemer. To set at liberty those who have been in bondage. He has set us free by the power of His own blood. Finally, we have the term Christ, which means Messiah, or Savior. This describes the office which He holds of Redeemer. He is the unique promised one, prophet, priest, and king. The Christ was the hope of Israel, the one that the forefathers had looked forward to. He's the Redeemer. And so here's the point. Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ by the nature of his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king is, Hebrews 7.25 tells us, able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so the Apostle Paul here is using, using an economy of words, but in this small salutation, as a minister of Christ, as, a, as an ambassador in chains, he's blessing the people of God with grace and peace which flow from God the Father through our Savior, through our Redeemer, and through our Lord. And this is only the introduction to the letter. These wonderful truths are packed into his greeting. This is the reason why when we enter into worship, one of the first things we receive is the blessing of God with these or like words. 
Because when we gather together for worship, we are gathering into the presence of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our God. And it is God who is blessing us. As God's people, we enter, as it were, into the most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary, by the redeeming blood of Jesus. We are drawn near to Him who is our great high priest, not in an earthly man-made sanctuary, but into the heavenly place. In fact, this is the space we spiritually occupy even right now. And so as the minister of Christ greets God's people, you and I are given and reminded of the grace and the peace which we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in that sense, our worship too is bookended with grace and with peace. For we begin with the, 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 the apostolic greeting of grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we end with God's benediction of grace and peace. As we, so as we worship, we do so with constant reliance and meditation upon the meritorious work of Christ. Our worship then ought to convey to us the grace of God in Christ, who purchased our salvation at the cross. And because of this grace which we have in Christ, we then also have great peace. Peace in our conscience, but we have peace with God. We have shalom. And we can rest. We can rest in His peace. This is glorious. We have been spiritually healed. We have been made spiritually whole in Christ. And we're being further nourished and further encouraged by His Word and by His Spirit. And we can rest in Him. We can rest in His promises because we are blood-bought, adopted children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who you are in Christ. So just as we can reflect on the weight of theology and the promises which are seen, even in this very brief introduction to the to church in Ephesus, we can reflect on these same promises every Lord's Day. We should reflect on the grace and the peace each time we enter into worship, even as we are leaving this place, blessed with God's blessing. It's not me blessing you. You need to understand that. It is God. I'm just giving you the words as God is blessing each and every one of you. And we can reflect on God's grace and His peace, which is ours because of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Redeemer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, graciously grant that Your Word may inwardly be inscribed on our hearts. May your grace and peace be carried on our hearts. And as we receive your word meekly and with pure affection, may our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to live as grateful children, 
because of the redemption that is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this for the honor of your name through Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.